coming on, man. Of course. Thanks Appreciate for, uh, you being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, you seem a lot more relaxed than you did a few days ago. <laughs> uh, the sun is shining. It seems like the weather is improving. How was last week for you? A little rough. Obviously, we had a couple days of hard frost in mid to late April, which is a bit threatening for the peach orchards and all the you know, the primary crop that we grow out here in Palisade. I would say a bit would be an understatement yeah. given <laughs> when I saw you, we were at the brewery at a mutual friend's birthday. Correct. There were some other farmers there and it just seemed like this collective cloud hanging over everyone's head as the temperature was plummeting in the late evening. Yeah. Um, and for us, we're relatively new farmers. So we'd put some, um, new trees in. Uh, we have some one-year-olds and then some that we just recently planted right before like that big rain. The day before, basically, right? Uh, it was like a week or so before, but a couple days before, yeah, the frost did. But we got like a bunch of rain and that was perfect. Weather looked great in the outlook. And then, you know, the sudden freak. We got this crazy wind that came in, temperatures dropped. And usually like around freezing you know that 32 it's not a big problem but when you get to you know the 26 27 that hard frost can really do damage because at that point all the peaches have started to blossom as well so all the pink beautiful blossoms we yeah see. yep and then if they freeze they'll just fall off and then there's no more fruit yeah i'm i'm not exactly sure how i think it something along the lines of you cut a branch and you can tell like basically sample uh, into the the root bark and if it's like dark you know it's like a black then it's not going to produce yeah well it was stressful for you i know for me it was interesting because i had some family in town and they're all from back east and i grew up in southern new jersey which is jersey gets a bad rap because of the nine television shows about it but <laughs> it is the garden state so we have a lot of agriculture for sure yeah but obviously much different climate no elevation change etc so we're not dealing with all the things we have out here. It was interesting for my family to come out during that time. They're familiar with the ag, but not familiar with this temperamental climate. And that night, the fan started going. Yep. Everything kind of got, they were at the brewery as well. They kind of sensed the stress that was happening. And I just thought it was interesting for them to see that and to see the reality of farming out here in Colorado. Yeah, it's, and it's one of those things that the, that same threat based on where we live um, of, you know, a late frost or even an early one in the fall is actually what enables us to produce basically the world-class peaches and wine grapes and everything else uh, in this valley that we do because we're essentially a desert climate and it's that diurnal shift, the really cold nights and those really warm days that produce incredible sugars. And so it's that, that temperature swing is actually to our benefit, but it can have the, the knock-on effect of, depending on timing, being, being a threat as well. So you're kind of walking that line, right? Yeah, so, so it's <laughs> like to be the best, you have to undergo the, the worst circumstances. Yeah, you got to take, take it all in, right? Yeah. Interesting. So you are, as you mentioned, a new farmer. Correct. You just recently purchased this property. Do people think you're crazy for doing this <laughs> and getting into this? Uh, I think the people, my friends from... Um, we came out from Southern California most recently. I think they all think I'm a little crazy, but obviously it's pretty par for the course out here in Palisade. And we'd been looking for exactly this type of a, a situation, something we could make a kind of mixed use polyculture homestead vibe. 
my family business growing up was bark topsoil compost so I've been playing in the dirt since I was really young I think it's like in our blood I did a about a decade long stint in Southern California as a primary grower uh, in the cannabis industry for medicinal dispensaries and, and whatnot and you were growing weed yep I was Interesting. Um, the biggest cash crop of all <laughs> at that time it was it was quite lucrative but then what years was it was this Oh man, I think uh, I started to get involved around oh six oh seven, and so then basically right when it when did it become legal in California? Medicine? I believe the first like regulation was actually around ninety four ninety eight, and so it'd been really go- that it, early. Yeah, it had I, been going for a while, but the whole like dispensary, the fact or the, like the approach of we can create you know shops to distribute this stuff was just starting to kind of emerge. And I think that was a result of case law and precedent and people had started to take steps forward. Prior to that, it was a lot of like small clubs or people going direct to growers and it was isolated to certain areas. You know, Humboldt County obviously like led the charge in a lot of ways. So you were a part of this early boom in terms yeah. of getting out there and, and you're physically growing the product? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We were doing all indoor hydroponic grows all sorts of sizes and scale and like approaches and and that was kind of cut my teeth again in on agriculture and being like I love this like I love growing stuff literally seeing enjoying the fruits of your labor being in that world was also really eye-opening from a first-hand perspective to see how many people this was actually helping and benefiting I worked really closely with a, a disabled vet, and obviously he was using it for PTSD purposes and stress relief, anxiety relief. But we ended up working with a number of dispensaries that had terminal patients. We produce Rick Simpson oil, which is like a very high proof, essentially a oil, a cannabis oil that has been known to potentially cure or put people back into remission from like stage four cancers and all sorts of various ailments. And so you know, you get more passionate about it at that point. You realize, like, the medicinal purpose of it and, like, the value of this thing that we've evolved with over millennia, really, and how it's become criminalized and politicized, kind of, take you know, taking that out of our hands as, like, a very accessible natural medicine. So. It's, it's so crazy growing up back east because, you know, obviously, like everyone else, I was introduced to pot in high school sure yeah I wasn't a big smoker it was so taboo once I started imbibing a little more maybe in grad school my early 20s I wouldn't tell anybody about it (laughs) even people you worked with that you thought were cool just because it was so taboo in the workplace it was so stigmatized that if you smoked pot you were this kind of person that was a crazy thing that was broken for me when I moved out west because it's a totally different mindset and I want to ask you about this too because you're working in this industry, our perception back east growing up is that, oh, anybody that works with marijuana is uh, this or that. When I was in Denver, when pot became legal, one of the things that surprised me the most was just outside of a few stoned bud tenders, I guess you call them. Yeah, yeah. Most people were so professional, yep. so into it for different reasons. I mean, financially a lot, obviously, but a lot of what you're talking about as well with the health and the actual benefits of the, the medicine and the plant. And so what was it like working in these fields? Were 
the people you were working with just big potheads or were they there for a variety of reasons? So I'll, I'll even go a, a further back, a step back. So growing up, I grew up raised outside of Seattle area and that's one of those states, state-run liquor stores. And so, but you know, surrounded by nature. And so it was actually easier for us as kids, high schoolers, to get our hands on weed than it was to get access to alcohol. So that was actually like more of the experimental high school, like exploring myself in the world kind of like vibe. Um, Back when you could still get the giggles from weed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you could sit with your buddies on a porch and, right. or in the car and smoke and just laugh for an hour straight. And so, yeah, weed, you know, I think like it kind of shaped that cult, the culture to some extent, at least in like circles I was in. And it for, yeah, when I went down to Southern California, went to school down there in Los Angeles, and then um, I got involved in the industry through actually friends who were already in the space. Mostly everyone I encountered were rel relatively professional. I think there's like, it's mixed, you know, you have the, the like huge stoner types, but the, the reality is it's, it's hard work and it's, it's not necessarily easy to do, especially like the indoor hydroponic grow design, build outs, like everything you have to consider, how quickly you can lose an entire crop if a pump fails, like all sorts of aspects. So there, most of the people I dealt with were relatively professional and I think there's, they were of an entrepreneurial mindset due to, you know, this is kind of a, a gray market it's legal, but not legal, like legal statewide, but not federally. There's bounds, but not really. And so as a result of that, there's huge opportunity to like create and, and build industry. And I was early enough to be able to see a lot of that kind of mature. And it was around when, or a couple years before California was about to go legal. And it was obvious, you know, writing was on the wall, things were being proposed that I decided to like step away because I was like, this is actually going to have a huge impact on the, the what is a cottage industry, you know, small growers, very select, working with their networks to huge producers, big money. And I, from a product and business perspective, market saturation, right? So I understood that once it goes legal, there's going to be, we're going to be flooded with, you know, legal cannabis. And at that point, the margins aren't as attractive, the work is less attractive as a result, and, but at the same time, that's kind of the whole, when Nicole and I were talking, my wife and I were talking about, you know, like, let's get a, a like a farm farm. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's try the real, the, the real thing, and let's, the outdoors, and like, you know, all the, all the elements of nature, as we were just touching on, and the whims of nature that you kind of have to deal with. So it's it's a different game, but with Wait, its so own So you're challenges. in Orange County you, at this time, right? Uh, Long Beach. Long so, Beach. Yeah. Oh, wow, beautiful we, place. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you're there. It's perfect weather, great for farming, and you guys say, let's try a farm. Why didn't you stick there with the nice sunny weather? Why come to – how did you find Palisade? Why did you come to Colorado? The – like, both the political climate and the farming – um, climate and situation in California was pretty rough at the time. Drought was a big issue. A lot of farms were shutting down, scaling back, looking to move out of the state. Because um, they couldn't have access to enough water? Or uh, they felt bad typically, about using the water? Yeah, it was, like, it was a water access issue, typically. And that's more central California. And yeah, we, we, 
we we knew we wanted to leave basically California and go somewhere a little more, I guess, rural. And we had I'd somehow through all this work, like been looking at various places across the U.S. and had discovered the western slope of Colorado and heard about this amazing little microclimate that's a result of the book cliffs as a huge heat sink and reflector onto the valley and the winds that blow through here up to the pass and kind of everything. It's, it's a really unique area. And we ended up doing a road trip starting, you know, the, the main area we were focused on was Colorado. We were going to go up to Wyoming, kind of loop around. Landed in Palisade first because that was kind of closest from our drive, but also like kind of top of list uh, from my perspective. And we spent a couple days and then moved on. I think we went down to like Ray and Durango and, you know, cut across to Colorado Springs and we were going to go loop back up. By the time we got back to Denver, it was like, do we keep going up to Fort Collins and across Wyoming and turn left, turn left. Yeah. The whole, <laughs> the whole the, Nicole and I, we were looking at each other and the whole time we would be like Palisade though. Like, man, that was, that was a vibe. There's like, there's just like an energy there. The people were great. Like, and so, yeah, we did exactly that. Turned left and went back across and uh, spent the rest of our trip out here. Met some people. Uh, met Laura Black, uh, was our realtor, who uh, also the proprietor of Mesa Park Vineyards. Who we just happened to overhear while we were sitting there that she was also a realtor. So it was just like all these serendipitous small connections, town, mate, too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and a small town, of course. But it kind of all naturally fell into place. Um, Did you have to be careful telling people you were from California? Because that's a hot button issue out here in the West. Yeah, now. we we limited who we were sharing that with, but at the same time, you know, it is what it is. I'm not trying to hide know, my history. Teasing, no, but it's true. There's like Californians, or the, it's really the coasts moving to more interstates, rural areas, getting out of the cities, which I think is a good thing for most you know, most people to stretch their legs and get out of urban metropolitan centers but well there's there's also the have, political aspect yeah there's to the it, political aspect i don't think i have the energy this morning to get into it but uh <laughs> land value aspects time. too right exactly. driving up prices and you know reducing supply so it's yeah always a sensitive thing but yeah so you bought the farm in 2020 we put our bid in yeah uh fall of 2020 which funny enough we ended up getting a huge frost i think the same week we closed and the, we, the property we purchased was entirely vineyard at the time. And we, all the Spanish, Italian, vinifera varietals essentially ended up dying off or at least dying back. And that gave us the opportunity to, okay, well, if we were going to make a change, now's as good a time as ever. So we ended up pulling about six acres out and we left the hybrids, grapes that are the cold hardy. Yeah, more cold hardy. Cool. So. I want to dive into your farm and your theories behind it because I think it's very interesting. But I want to close the loop on one more thing just because it's so top of mind for me. The frost last week, the craziest thing, it, it felt like we were on a war zone when oh, yeah. I stepped out at <laughs> night and I heard the fans going and then, you know, I had the opportunity to visit your farm the last few days. And you were telling me about some techniques that are used to combat the frost. And I think that's so unique. Obviously, they weren't used where I grew up, not in California. You had several mentioned several techniques about how you would actually introduce maybe water to the trees to protect them. Right. And then also this technique of burning a bonfire yep. right next to the orchard, which yep. seems dangerous, <laughs> uh, but also very cool. So can you explain some of that to people? I'm sure 
people visiting during this time are kind of like, what the F is going on? Right. And even as a new resident, newish me, I didn't really know what was happening either. So explain some of that. Sure. So the common technique now these days is there are a bunch of tower windmill kind of fans placed throughout the valley, propane driven. Usually I think they're, I don't know if they're manually fired or some of them might be on a temperature gauge and they you know, fire as needed. But what they do is both the fans spin, but then it also rotates. And so it's moving in like a 360 degree while the fan's spinning and it's just moving the air around the orchard. And that has the effect of raising the temperature around the trees a couple of degrees, which if you're at 26, 27 and you can bump it up to, you know, 29 or 30, that's actually a huge change into the, and benefit in terms of potential loss. See, I'm a writer, so don't fault me for this stupid question, but doesn't when you turn on a fan, it get colder? You're moving the air. Yeah. Okay. So I think it's, it's something to do with like air movement versus stagnant air. I'm not sure of the exact, uh, you know, science here, but this is what I've learned. And I was actually just chatting with Becky, who is the owner and proprietor of Nana's in town. And she said back when she moved out here, she's, you know, uh, much older and has a lot more experience uh, farming peaches out here. She said they would actually bring helicopters in and they would run the helicopters uh, to have the exact same impact. They would have helicopters hover over the... I'm not sure if they were like on the ground and just blade spinning or if they would do a hover. But she, uh, when she said that, I was like, oh, wow. That seems expensive. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) it seems like a lot of work. But also epic. Yeah. Can we bring that back? That's amazing. Uh, But yeah, then people who don't have the benefit of running a fan or they're not close to, you know, a neighbor's fan, you can run water as well, which also seems counterintuitive. So you spray down the trees with water. Yeah, you want to start it relatively early. So I know a couple farmers, they were saying around 7 the night before, they turn on their water. And raising the humidity also in the air also really helped to kind of combat the, those cold frost, stagnant cold you know, frost air. Um, and then they run it all night. And so when you'd wake up in the morning, if you were driving around, you might have seen like some of them just covered in ice both of the, the, the sprinkler systems themselves and then some of like the, the tree bark and all, everything is just like basically all ice, ice sheet covered. And that's good? It is. It basically has like an insulating effect or it can. So that's a common one. And then smudging was the, yeah. Smudging. Yeah, that's, that's what the, it's called. the fire burning aspect. But I don't think many people do that uh, much anymore. But yeah, next door to us, James was or whoever was taking care of those trees, they basically lit a small fire at the top of every orchard lane. And then they were running their fan as well. And you could see they had like their cars on, like lights on, and you could see like the smoke and the hot air essentially being pulled down the orchard lanes and up into the fan and then being like basically circulated around. So yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah, that's that makes <laughs> sense, and that's super cool. That's also an old school Italian vineyard technique that they would do, where you know, if they were expecting frost back in the day, um, they would light bonfires throughout the the vineyard, and they'd go out there with these crude fans, and they'd just be waving them and just spend all night hanging out, you know, just drinking so, wine. Yeah, probably. That yeah, sounds fun, actually. It's if you know, typically it's one night maybe two, so it's not like you're doing it all the time. And so it's it's part of, you know, one of those 
one of those responsibilities you just kind of own it yeah it, it makes me think back to ancient civilizations where you know we're doing this to protect cash crops right if we lost a whole orchard we're going to survive back in the day these techniques were probably so important just to not go into a famine yeah to protect crops that were under threat and your lifeblood as a company industry family depending on how how far back like losing a year of of crop could be detrimental you could lose your farm you could not be able to pay your debts you could yeah or in in the worst case not be able to feed feed your farm uh, your family or the community around you are the trees too tall to cover them i see they do that with vineyards when the fruit gets ripe to protect from the birds they right put the bird nets on yeah could they do that with peach trees in terms of trying to cover them i don't think that would work one it's logistically complex you also don't really want to disturb the blossoms too much so i think like putting like that friction the weight over it would probably have some impact i would expect interesting but, i wonder yeah. how many if we could come up with a list of failed techniques yeah that did not work <laughs> but i vote for the smudging yeah i like yeah. that the best it's it definitely was cool and then like the smell of fire and it was I, literally like a war zone yeah yeah yeah, yeah and I, you had the noise you had the fire the smoke yeah everybody stay inside yeah those fans were the second night we're running basically from 9 10 to 7 8 in the morning once it warmed up and it essentially sounds like a helicopter landing or taking off all night it and did. so we're surrounded by Almost him, so. like an alien one it was like whoa <laughs> Crazy. So to your knowledge, was there a lot of damage? Have you heard reports from farmers? I've talked to a few. Um, there will definitely be some loss. I haven't really heard like how bad yet. Surprisingly, it sounds like the Orchard Mesa got a little colder than we did down here, at least the first night. Surprisingly. Yeah, you, typically, if, as I understand it, they're usually a bit warmer. But maybe that's uh, one of those, they're colder in the winter, warmer in the summer kind of things. I'm not sure. But there, we definitely got to some cold temps. I talked to Brandon Black, again, Mesa Park Vineyard, now a primarily fruit grower. He was saying 26, 27, which depending on how far along your blossoms are, that can be up to like 90% loss, really. Wow. But I don't think we'll be that bad. But uh, Becky, who I was uh, just mentioning as well, she was saying she, the first night they got down to maybe like 29 which isn't really that bad. As I understand it, that can be like about a 10%, which is kind of more just like natural thinning. I feel like every year there's some, I haven't been here this long, but I remember last year, I think there was some talk of, oh, Palisade's not gonna have any peaches. Yeah. They lost all this. And man, there's still peaches around, I think from last season, they're everywhere. And they, there is a bunch of different you know varietals. So right. some are later blooming, which if they haven't like opened up yet, you're way better off. So it also just like kind of depends on, you know, yeah. I can't imagine the stress of it. I get stressed over things I can control, <laughs> uh, let alone fighting mother nature. And it's, as you say, your livelihood. Yeah. Crazy. Um, definitely can be for those who are committed to it. So welcome to the rest of your life. Every yeah. Year, buddy. I'm excited for you it. You know? It's, so it's yeah, a learning let's, experience. let's talk about your farm. You have a very unique, I guess it would be backstory, but mission, mantra behind all this. You moved from California to Colorado. You guys wanted to get your own farm. Tell us some of the reasons behind that and what you're trying to accomplish here. One, it's a passion. I love agriculture. I love growing things. In my professional life, my other professional life, I, I work in the blockchain, cryptocurrency, fintech space. 
and I do a lot of like systems design essentially I'm helping projects think about both their economic design from like a token perspective which we won't go too far down that rabbit hole probably but bu building a farm that has multiple components and where the outputs from one thing become inputs to another and we can keep a kind of build a closed system or build a regenerative system was really intriguing to me. So that was one of the, the visions I, I had and things I wanted to do. It's somewhat permaculture, but it's more kind of like a, a regenerative approach to, yeah, again, taking outputs from one, one aspect of your farm and having them be beneficial inputs to another part. Okay, so give us some examples. How are you designing your farm? Sure, yeah. That? So livestock plays a big role isn't super common in Palisade where we're at. It's mainly orchards and vineyards, but the animals, by the nature of what they do, are producing natural fertilizer all the time. Some more beneficial than others, but we're raising Berkshire hogs, a heritage breed. And By the way, my lawyer's going to contact you about that when I got bit on the toe by him. Today. <laughs> uh, if you guys have never been around pigs, I didn't know this. He took me over to his pig pen and Drew says, oh, go on in. And all of a sudden, my feet were the, the next nibbles. Yeah. yeah, they like to nibble I did not on your know toes. That, uh, yeah. But they didn't do it to you. Oh, they so did. So maybe I need to establish dominance next time. No, they'll, they're always nibbling on the toes. <laughs> um, if, yeah, those are little guys, too. If, wait till you see the big ones. I need the steel toe. <laughs> yeah. I'm not coming over without my boots next time. <laughs> but yeah, we, we essentially carved out uh, about an acre of pasture. And then next to that, we have these three paddocks like pasture paddocks that we rotate our pigs through they basically till up the soil it's a little hard pack because of the nature of like their hooves and whatnot but they're also fertilizing and then we're also feeding them out a bunch of basically waste produce uh, food waste from wine country inn fidel's cafe soul and junction and that all anything they don't like don't want or they're just dropping it kind of just all mixes down in starts to naturally compost also have been grabbing the apple pumice from the cider that's made by the talbots so also trying to find waste outputs from other local businesses and farms that we can leverage and and turn into like beneficial feed but also then acts and goes into our composting pro program so you're a farmer slash trash man. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, and then I rotate the pigs through those pastures. So once we, you know, we'll process uh, one batch, and then we'll bring the next one in in the next pasture. And this year, for instance, we planted a bunch of potatoes in behind them. And then, yeah, we'll do the same thing. We'll, we'll do bush beans in the pasture above the current one. And so by the time we bring the next batch in, they'll have a bunch of natural food and, and forage in their pasture that they can uh, leverage. Uh, another one we're introducing is alpacas. And so the pasture is mainly gonna be dedicated to them. And they're great because their manure doesn't need to be composted. It can be essentially directly applied to say tree wells, so our orchard. And they also all defecate in basically the same spot. So it's very easy to harvest their manure Collectively, they do it in the yeah, same spot. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's really interesting. Yeah. What is, I mean, what other species do that? So I guess humans do it, but we're kind of trained to do it. Cats pretty naturally do it with like litter boxes and whatnot. Will they um, share a litter, will cats share a litter box? Yeah, they will? some okay. will. But that's also more of like 
like I think of domesticated learning like out in nature I don't think they're like choosing the same spot but it it makes sense right animals they'll especially if they're in a confined area they'll choose like a spot to like defecate in because they're not they want to keep it away from like their water or their but food that's a higher level of intelligence the pigs don't do that i'm guessing not right? really yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but that's very convenient because it's all in one place you right. can harvest it quote unquote right so their their manure doesn't have to be composted i'm curious about that you wouldn't use your dogs defecate you know, i would for, not so how, how yeah. does that, is it based on what the animal's eating, yeah. just their system? I think it, uh, I, I think it, all, it, it is partially like their system and digestion, but it's mainly diet, right? So they're eating hay and grass. Goat manure works great like this too, but it's, they don't have the same benefit of like it all being in the same spot or in a r- relatively united pile. So you'd be like running around your paddock and picking it up and so. That's so interesting. Yeah. Okay. And with the alpacas, are you going to plan to have them available to the public as well for... Yeah, we we probably will. Maybe not like all the time, but <laughs> we did a pumpkin patch last year and we're going to do that again this year. And a big draw of that was having like the young kids and the families walk down, uh, check out the pigs. We had a bunch of, a box of rotten pumpkins that people were throwing over the fence and smashing them for the pigs to eat, which they love. Yeah, I hear your pumpkin patch was quite the hit last year. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, That's awesome. We basically had a top part of our property we weren't really doing anything with yet. We hadn't planted. I was still thinking through how I wanted to develop it. Preston, who's basically my primary farmhand and partner in a lot of what happens on the farm, particularly the pumpkin patch, we kind of looked at each other and were like, you know, we should throw some pumpkins down and just like see and yeah sure enough then we had a pumpkin patch yeah, <laughs> and then we had awesome. to open does it anybody up. in palisade do one not not currently i've been told people used to it's one of those things like i think if you have the property to do something like that you're better off planting peaches so it's kind of like i see the the dis- pumpkins aren't that profitable they the pump a pumpkin patch can be very profitable selling pumpkins not really so much that's why actually a lot of the pumpkin patches that are around here, like Fruta, and, uh, Stutes is a big one. They definitely make more on the games and the food and the, the all the amenities. It. Yeah, it, that, more than like the pumpkins themselves. So we built a bunch of carnival games, you know, handmade and, and had some stuff. It was definitely more catering to, you know, smaller, smaller young families. But. Cool. So the theory behind your farm you had mentioned to me is a lot about sovereignty. Correct. And yeah. a lot of that stems from your dissatisfaction with the current food industry. So I'm curious if you can take us through that a bit and tell us the problems you've identified and how you look to correct that. Yeah, I think, you know, generally speaking, I am a big proponent of self-sovereignty in, in general. The ability to take care of your needs, your community's needs, it within and under your control. Um, this is one of the reasons I was pulled into and have dedicated a lot of my time into the blockchain space, because that's essentially about the sovereignty of, of money, of wealth, of the ability to create, distribute value in forms and in ways that you think are better suited for a community or a project or a business. And food sovereignty is one that I think we've we've lost touch with. It was like second nature to our grandparents and their grandparents. Um, everybody had at least a small victory garden backyard and everybody would grow their own. 
as a result of where our society has gone and the food industry being a part of that, we're now mass producing crops in different places all around the world and then shipping them across the world in many cases to other places. Th that is one big issue in the sense that the transportation costs, the carbon emissions, the the, the footprint of it. The foot, yeah, the footprint of it. That that's like a, a big piece of it. I think also the fact that most of the food we're consuming in the Western world, uh, Western diets, is coming out of plastic bags, often referred to as food stuffs, not even food, mm. um, it, it, particularly by the people who are producing it, the Nestles of the world, and all these like. Yeah. Okay, so, so let's dive into this a little bit. Just a quick story. I previously lived in Hawaii and I guide out there. So I've learned quite a bit about the culture and the history. Pre-Western contact, Hawaii was completely self-sustaining. Mm -hmm. They grew everything for themselves. Obviously, they're so isolated. They had to. Now they import over 90% of their food. Insane. And local food is actually really expensive right so as someone living there who's on a budget it's very tempting to buy that mainland uh, banana yeah. or that that banana from ecuador versus the local banana from hawaii because the price difference can be almost a dollar two dollars a pound and yeah. that's very difficult right and i think culturally that's actually a problem too we've been trained to buy based on price versus value interesting and i think that goes beyond food but I think in a lot of ways, like, and surprisingly, like, or maybe not surprisingly, the, the quality of the food you're getting at that lower price point is obviously going to be lower. And these, the mass farmed monoculture, whatever it be, wheat, corn, potato, whatever, it's typically they're taking steps and they're doing things to, you know, squeeze the the primary, like all the margin out that they can. So versus the small farmer who may be directly composting, taking great care of, putting a lot more into the production of like a smaller crop or a, a smaller field, the nutritional benefit there versus just the value to you nutritionally versus the price, right? So I, I we mean, were walking that line constantly in, in Western culture, I feel like. Yeah, I understand why people decide on price. I've been at points in my life where I've had to, where, of okay, course, I would yeah. love to buy that organic apple, but it's just challenging. So I understand that part of it. What I don't understand is maybe you can help explain this and maybe this can transition into kind of you explaining centralized and decentralized food processes. How can a banana that's grown in Ecuador and then transported all the way out to Hawaii be cheaper, be cheaper than a banana grown right there in Hawaii? It's scale, I think, is the main one. Economies of scale around, you know, when you're growing tens of thousands of acres of a crop, you're able to, at the, the cost of fertilizer, of inputs for pesticide, whatever it may be, it becomes easier. Also, the cost to operate in some of these third world developing countries is much, much lower. And so the labor cost plays a huge role in farming generally especially out here. We have tons of H2A guys who come up from Mexico during the season. They're able to make a gr way better living up here during those few months and then go back and essentially live off that and provide for their families. And so I think it's a labor issue. I think it's an economy or a labor result of labor cost, uh, economies of scale cost. 
that that would be like my two main assumptions. Okay, it's um, just it's always baffled me, and yeah. I think you're right. I mean, a lot of the land in Hawaii, not to get too far so into expensive, it, but yeah. expensive. Okay. And previously, it had all been dominated by cash crops. They pushed out local farmers for right. sugarcane, pineapple, and that kind of thing. Now, yeah, bananas. There's really not many banana orchards in Hawaii. It's more of people growing them in their small farm right. or backyard. Yeah. And so that makes sense. It's just, it's always interesting to think about that, that this thing is made all the way across the world, right. but comes here and is competing at not just a lower price point, a much lower price point. And I would assume here in the Western Slope, that's just a big a challenge in its own way. You on your website talk about decentralizing. Am I getting that right? Correct. The, the, yeah. food, the food chain. Explain what that means. Basically, more local-based food sourcing and economies. I mean, taking a step back, I think we've also become spoiled the fact that we can have peaches in the winter or various crops throughout the year or produce or crops from places that are not natural or would not be naturally grown in the environment we're in. And that's a result of obviously our, our globalized supply chain and everything else, which is great, but it's kind of, you know, you're, it's not natural, <laughs> you yeah. know, so eating seasonally, eating primarily the crops and the livestock that are raised and able to naturally be raised in your environment, I think is something that was more, a lot more common, obviously past generations. But I think too, there's... There's a need for more people to kind of relearn and respect, I guess, the value of locally produced food and how we can actually build sustainable, smaller supply chains, local and community-driven supply chains that in times of supply chain weakness, global political upheaval, whatever may, we may face, will be a lot more sustainable. If a war were to break out, we are going to lose our access to possibly major crops that we're dependent on at this point from parts of the world. If yeah. we don't actually have local kind of closed decentralized food systems and networks throughout the world, that, that will actually increase food security and in my opinion will increase food like nutrition like the value and like the the nutritional content of the food too because you're not dealing with huge monocrop you know grown mass produced factory farmed produce and, and crops and that's obviously a tenet I've taken from and resonates with me on like you know the blockchain side and decentralization of currency, of value, and that can take many forms. And, and so the sovereignty, I mean, we talk about this a lot in today's politics, say with the Russian war with oil, right? We're hearing all of that about Europe and how dependent everybody is. Food is an interesting one that's not talked about a lot, but perhaps even more important. The U.S. is one of the greatest producers, largest producers of food, in the um, world, I think they're in the cer Netherlands. Certain or? crops, okay. uh, you know, wheat, corn, typically. But yes, we are a big breadbasket for the world. Russia is as well, though, and Ukraine. And more importantly, in terms of especially at least how we farm today, mass farming, they're a major producer of the fertilizer that's required for these farms to operate. 
because in a lot of cases we're growing things as you touched on that we shouldn't be growing or that have been become cash crops and been the focus of, of and, and therefore the, the land has been occupied by these crops versus growing what naturally works or is meant to be grown in a certain region you become more reliant on all those inputs those fertilizers in order to keep the plants going the soil i'm not going to say healthy but nutrient rich enough for whatever crop to grow versus doing things like companion planting or crop rotation and and all those types of practices that can yes you're not only going to be growing bananas the crops will change based on what's needed and, and maintaining a strong soil health so how did we get here? Was it like everything else in the world, just greed and economics? Basically. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and people yeah. wanting that banana, right? Yep. Like if we just ate what was around, we would never have a banana in our life, right? You so know, people wanting that exotic fruit and wanting those exotic items. You want to know what makes me even more... Desire s- creates the universe. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that makes me actually more sad is the banana we know today is one of hundreds of varieties of bananas. The apple, you know, the top, like the red, delicious, and the green, granny, and all these. But yeah, these, <laughs> what we know and describe and talk about culturally as like an apple or a banana is like one of hundreds of genetic varieties that, as a result, too, we lose the nutritional benefit of having like crop diversity or, or genetic diversity within a single crop. There's a forest in Kazakhstan that is basically the apple forest. It's where the apple was essentially born, and most of the genetics were picked, hand-picked out of this forest, and it's wild. These apples taste like oranges. They taste like flowers. They taste like there are flavor profiles and just color, shape, genetic differences in this forest that, like, it would blow your mind. You would never believe that half of these things are actually apples. And so I'd prefer, and I think we would benefit, to see more of that diversity naturally in kind of what we're doing. But now we've been kind of, again, culturally trained, like, oh, it's got to be this this shape and this size and this color and this... this no spots yeah, this kind of thing. How do you do this in your day-to-day life? Do you buy a banana at the store or are you trying to alter your lifestyle where you're only buying things that are grown in the area? How do you manage this and how should, you know, I don't expect most people to just cut off everything that's being imported all of, of a course, sudden. Yeah. What's, what are some tips for people? How can they start to... Man, throw up a raised bed in your backyard, plant some seeds, go to your local nursery, Grow, grow some of your own. I mean, tomatoes, peppers, these types of things will basically grow anywhere for the most part. Start to, yeah, produce some of your own food naturally and challenge yourself. D- does it taste different? Does it taste more nutritionally fulfilling? Does it, like, actually taste brighter? Does it taste hotter? Does it, like, depending on whatever you're growing? I think that's the biggest step and what I'd encourage everyone to do and then encourage your neighbor to do it. And then be like, hey, I'm growing t- a lot of tomatoes this year. Do you want to grow strawberries? And then we'll swap. We rarely even talk to our neighbors in most places <laughs> in Western culture again. But like, I think now you're also building a community, right? And you're building relationships and you're taking care of each other. It's going to take time. It's going to take energy. It might actually initially cost more for you to build the bed, buy the soil, buy the you know seeds, plant them, water them, your time to take care of it. But again, to be able to to like experience the fruits of your labor and then to have 
to know exactly what went into your food, I think is like such a benefit. And then to be able to share and provide for your neighborhood, your cul-de-sac, your local community, I think is something we need to do more of, whether it be food or anything else. We really have no excuse out here either because no. most people have a little bit of space in the land. We have a great growing region, obviously. We have it all happening. We have people like you inspiring us to do it. <laughs> and we have people not only who live here, but people who come here who want local products. Right. So we really have no excuse. Yeah, that's, I think, also one of the big reasons we fell in love with the with Palisade generally is the community, like, feel and aspect. And everyone I talk to, and it's not like these are new ideas. In a lot of cases, uh, the multi-generational farmers are doing these types of things naturally they're just it's not even thought of as like a novel thing but at the same time we've kind of fallen into the the trap of peaches and I, it used to be apples is what i hear but now it's peaches peaches are cash crop yeah that exactly. threatens everything else pushing out other things right. because it's the most valuable thing for the land or wine now great not gonna do the pumpkin patch because i want to put more trees in because that's you know the most financially beneficial and i get it and it, it makes sense and there's i don't fault anyone for that and then we we start getting into a position where here in this little valley, it's just crazy peach oversaturation. And so we're now shipping it to the front range, to Denver. We're yeah, we're doing it to things California. that we're sitting here we're talking about that isn't Trying right. not yeah. to do. But, yeah, yeah. But that's also just, again, like peaches are a very hard – or they, they require some pretty specific climate needs. And so – and, again, we have this unique – being in the kind of the desert, this diurnal shift, so we produce these great sugars. So it's a benefit to us to be able to do that and then share share it out. But I still think, as far as I understand, except for maybe some of the bigger growers, a lot of that is still pr like consumed within a state, two state, three state kind of border. It's regional. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely it's definitely a regional thing. But yeah, I think there there's just too much dependence on like just-in-time shipping, supply chain, economics, and structures, processes these days. And one little hiccup as a result of a number of different things can really hurt and, and cause a serious situation for food security in a variety of communities. And so the sooner we can kind of start to take steps towards decentralizing and creating local food networks, even regional, multi-state doesn't need to it can be neighborhood it can be cul-de-sac can be multi-state but i think we're still going to have the situation and it's f fine and it, even to our benefit in some ways of mass producing certain crops and shipping them around but in the failure of something that the sensitive supply chain which we saw during you know the pandemic recently how quickly things were disrupted and certain products were not hitting shelves Definitely. and grocery stores were getting emptied and we can create yeah, again, better security around those things and access, but hopefully also like a better quality product. So I'm curious what you would say to someone or a company like Monsanto <laughs> who would claim that uh, many you know, a thing. Uh, <laughs> of course, I, I'm just what would you say to them? Because from their standpoint, whether they're being honest or not, but they are saying they're feeding the world. They're providing food security in the methods that they're doing. Maybe they're kind of saying, hey, people don't want to farm. They want to do other things. Let us take care of it. What role do you see them playing, and, and what do you think about that? My opinion of 
Monsanto and companies like that is they're actually, their practices are quite predatory and they're doing it not out of the goodness of feeding the world, but of controlling the food supply and creating seed that is dependent on fertilizer, that is dependent on basically their program in order to produce corn or whatever it might be. As a result of that, you kind of become dependent on them. And a lot of times these genetics can be, that they're producing can be invasive. They start to work against the natural heritage corn that have been grown for years. You again, lose crop diversity. I have multiple mixed feelings about genetically modified foods, tweaking them for the purpose of basically making it the, the main thing they're doing obviously is creating programs that match seed with like their fertilizer or their pesticide programs. So you can essentially spray your corn with all this like nasty pesticide and the corn's fine because it's been like genetically modified to accept it. And then anything else, all the weeds, everything around it basically can't. And so, but at the same time, you're still applying that pesticide on the corn, which is being consumed by humans, which was never meant to consume these types of chemicals or you do know. you believe that's affecting us oh yeah 100 percent. look at um, incidents of diabetes obesity in western culture it's it's there's something going on in our food that is impacting the health of people it's beyond just a shift in my opinion a shift to sedentary lifestyles and and whatnot i i truly believe that there are things happening in our food system and in our food that are having detrimental impacts on our health. The way I've always thought about it is McDonald's, Burger King, Taco Bell, fast foods have been detrimental to us, I think. Also processed foods, buying things in the grocery store that are frozen, ultra processed, preservatives. Bag, yeah. I never really thought about whether pesticides could impact our health in that way. I, de I definitely think it plays in a huge role. I also think genetic tweaking can do things like until we can do controlled studies over long time periods to understand impact before introducing them to mass market and also how it's introduced to mass market without any real transparency. You're not told as a consumer, you might see some new labeling like bioengineered on the Kellogg's Fruit Loops box, but like what does that mean to the average consumer? Do they understand the choice they're making? And a lot of times they don't give a shit because yeah, this is what I can afford, or this is what I expect to pay for this product, and then or that, this is the only thing my kids will eat. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> also part of the problem, you know. Yeah, yeah, training habit of trying to eat healthy, raw, natural. At the same time, if you've ever taken a young child out into a garden and let them pick a carrot, and then they eat that thing, I, I mean, my personal opinion, I remember being a kid and doing this. I was like this is a carrot like it just tastes so much different so much like brighter rich like like it's great and then the next time you have like a bagged carrot or something you're just like this is what <laughs> this is totally different you know yeah. so but most kids memories my own included are not of going to eat the carrot they're going to eat the burger king fries sure or something like that and getting the happy meal and this is also cooking process it's seed oil it's all these things we're using to uh, fry and, and cook our food is also having an impact. It's, I, it's, a, it's a culture of convenience. It's a culture of, of price. A lot of times, again, that is based on necessity. But 
I think there is enough opportunity and potential for someone to basically just plant a small, plant an herb garden in your windowsill. You know, start there and start to see, does it taste different? Does it, it's like having access to those herbs can brighten and make these other raw, like, oh, I have, that's the other thing. I have to make something. I got to buy a tomato and then cut it up and then mix it with the lettuce and, you know, versus like buying a packaged meal or what's presented as a comprehensive meal there again that's the convenient side so so that's a beautiful memory you shared about the carrot do you have a memory like that where you got introduced to this idea of sovereignty did you have an incident that struck some fear in you or maybe many (laughs) no i think it's more just like my childhood teenage angst and healthy distrust of authority that's really just never left me i don't know if that's part of who I've always been I think it is but as a species we've survived and thrived on this planet for a long time I think there yes there are modern conveniences um, and we've made progress along those lines but I think a lot of what we view as convenience is actually having detrimental impact on our social structures on our health and taking a little bit of cue from nature and looking at how the the biosphere takes care of its own and how these like the species are able to to encourage thrive work together we we would benefit from taking i think some cues a little biomimicry would be to our benefit have you ever read the book sapiens yeah okay i love that book yeah blew my mind i I encourage everyone to read it not only just for the history of humanity but there was a really interesting section in there about the agricultural revolution. Yeah. The author basically presents the agricultural revolution as something that was necessary for us to expand the way we did. Population growth, yeah. But also something that kind of made us lose our soul a bit yep. because previously we were hunter-gatherers. Mm-hmm. We were nomadic within a region. To your point, we only ate things that were naturally available. Right. We didn't cultivate anything. So we took really good care of what was around us. We knew what things were going to be available seasonally. That freed us up from kind of the drudgery of farming, right? which then required us to stay in one place. And then it made us very dependent on our farming methods. If we had the late freeze and we lost all our crops, now our civilization was in real trouble versus before we weren't dependent on one field of potatoes. We were... Eating we, can, thing, we can move. Eating yeah. a variety of yeah. things. So, okay, little weird weather thing over here. Well, let's migrate over this way a bit. So I'm curious your thoughts on that because I came away with it thinking, wow, what a turning point in history for better and for worse. Yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword. The ability for us to form cities <clears throat> and towns because we could sow crop and, and take care of it we didn't need to migrate and move as the seasons change. We didn't need to follow the buffalo as our primary food source or whatever it might be. But yeah, I think that pre that era, there was a connection to and a respect probably for nature, the animals we were hunting, the crops we were foraging, that at that po- point was kind of lost because it's like, oh, well, we, we can just grow it here and grow it in rows and, and you know make it, make it super efficient and convenient. So yeah, again, pros and cons. I just, I think that we may have 
swung too far that direction in enabling convenience uh, for the sake of, I guess, growth and losing touch with some of those roots and some of the the beauty and the importance of like this biosphere that we are a key component and a driving force in because of our place in sustaining this planet just not only for ourselves but future generations and and doing it in a way that's long-term beneficial and healthy for all of the species involved are you a fan of csa's community shared or community sponsored agriculture i am of course yeah that's a great example of essentially a local food network and creating more food security and food sovereignty within communities. I'm think. a member of Rooted Gypsy awesome. at a Grand Junction. They're great. We started in the fall going into winter. So we're looking forward to more of the summer variety, of course. Sure, yeah. But even now in the winter, I've been introduced to all kinds of things. I had no idea were produced here. Microgreens, of, yeah. of a variety of them, different kinds of mushrooms, some of which you look at and think to yourself, should I really eat this? <laughs> But they're really cool. They're aesthetic. It's That's the other beautiful thing, I think, is like discovering new foods, right? It's like it isn't just hamburger, <laughs> you know, right. like or whatever, yeah, pizza. It's being able to, yeah, try new squash, try new mushrooms. Like you might like something you didn't know existed. And I think another thing that's very beneficial to our health that we don't really respect is a variety of diet and both eating seasonally, but also like just variety. The, the more rainbow in your diet, the more color, typically it's, you know, been proven that that's going to be a, a more beneficially, like, healthy and nutritional food program, I guess. I wonder if people are intimidated, because sometimes we'll get the box, and Julie and I open it up, and we're excited, and then we think to ourselves, how the hell do we cook this, and how, <laughs> how do we best prepare it? That, some nights, opens up a lot of opportunity, because it's exciting, we do the research together, we cook it, it's a fun experience, and some nights... You know, you're stressed, you just want to get dinner going, and it's like, oh, I don't really, you know. So I wonder if, um, as part of CSAs, it would be great to include some sort of... Recipes. Recipes, yeah. inspiration. 100%. I think that's actually very important. I think dropping a box of vegetables or produce on someone and being like, here you go, like, that's step one, right? But to your point... Um, and you're obviously, you know, in tune and interested in exploring these things, but give some guidance. We need, it's, it, it's a, it really, it's an education problem in a lot of ways, I think, where, yeah, this is how you cook it. This is not just how you cook it or prepare it. This is how you make it delicious. And this is how both recipes, infusions, all sorts of interesting things, like helping people to think about, oh, you're not going to use all this canning how, how to preserve it, how long does it last, and thinking about also that creates additional food security around having a pantry and, and having things prepped or canned or bottled or whatever it might be for later use. Should you have a, those are things we had to consider, or our grandparents had to consider like, you know, years ago. Of, well, if we don't get a crop this year, we have all these peach preserves from the past, and yeah, it's not as good as a fresh, tree-riped, juicy peach, but we have something, and so... Uh, I think a little bit of like the preparation mindset also helps uh, obviously create greater uh, food security as well. I think an important thing too is getting the word out about these things. Right. Generally speaking, we've talked about this before, I think Palisade has a problem with marketing itself, yep. both as a whole and as an individual, as individual entities. And that was one of the reasons I've been motivated to start this podcast 
and the chance to meet people like you who are doing these things and having these thoughts, the everyday person just working and, and kind of living out their life may not necessarily be exposed to it all. Social media helps, but farmers don't have a ton of time, right. especially when you have uh, farms that have been around a long time. Like you say, they just do what they do. They don't realize they're special, which makes them extremely special. Right. It's, it's, it's harder for people to really get in tune with the story behind it. How do you see, you know, you're a young guy, you have a lot of experience outside of farming that you're bringing into this community. Do you have any advice for, you have a beautiful website, which Harding Homegrown. Yeah, hardinghomegrown.com. Which I hope everyone will go to and check out. You are, have expertise in marketing or experience in that. How can people in this valley improve their visibility? I think we do a pr an okay job. It revolves around this peach narrative, which I actually think has been a huge benefit. Definitely. More than anything. And huge accolades and, and props to, you know, the Talbots and a lot of these multi-generational farmers who I have love been here the for years. They're yeah. the sweetest people. They, they uh, you know, when the Apple market started to shift, as I understand it, Washington kind of started to eat our lunch. We got what, the state of Washington. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, Eastern Washington, huge orchard area, but also like codling moth and some other things that were introduced to the valley that made like crop apple crop production uh, really really ch challenging. They pivoted to peaches and they made this unifying peach narrative, which like brought everyone together and brought a tremendous amount of value and eyes on <clears throat> the vineyards. Obviously, of course, uh, similarly. Primarily, obviously, from like the agritourism draw, people want to come out here and they can do the whole like wine, wine country, wine tour thing. If it's seasonal, get a box of peaches. And I think that's something that's actually really unique about Palisades specifically is that being able to have that tourism draw. There are amazing farming communities and, and areas all around the country, all around the world, but some of them are not located in a way. Nobody's headed to Nebraska for vacation. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well put. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, we're, we're kind of lucky to be placed in, within close proximity to a major metropolitan in Denver, but far enough away that, it, you know, <laughs> uh, you got to venture across the Rockies. Um, and so that, that helps a lot. But, you know, I think people, you, you kind of hit it on the head. I don't think people realize, especially the multi-generational farmers, like, some of the things they're doing are just like so beautiful and they're already t they're already practicing the things that I'm like talking about and trying to introduce to my farm whether they understand or they're communicating it or not and I think for a lot of people it, it is about the story it is about like who you are what you're doing more than just we have great peaches right I think part of local shopping conscious consumer organic you know farmers market they want to meet the farmer. They want to talk to you. They want to know what you're doing, why you're doing it. They want to have a relationship. And I think that also helps to drive business back and create connection and, and grow those CSAs, those networks, those farmers markets. Palisade Farmers Market has been ranked in the top of the entire country yeah. several years, which blows my mind. Yeah. Because just the fact that they would know about it, so many people have farmers so many places have farmer's markets. Right. Anywhere you go will have a farmer's market. The fact that we are considered amongst the best is amazing. Yeah. And it's, it's also a testament to like all the diversity of what is happening here and what is going on. 
and new farms coming every day. Terra Farms, Mushroom Farmer, the Microgreens guys. People are starting to explore and push beyond, again, just the typical peaches thing. So the new farmers are interested in things other than peaches and wine. I, I don't know if it's, yeah, I, I think it might just be like they see a, a niche that they can appeal to or create or satisfy. Obviously, we're seeing population growth in, you know, here, Grand Junction, and which is overflowing. And so Fruta's booming. Fruta is definitely booming. And so being able to satisfy the, the growing demand for all these like different product needs, I think it's just a result of that. And people also just they find their passion some people just love growing mushrooms that you know that or they have they, they they find a connection with a certain uh crop or a certain approach i i for one like i love aquaponics i love the closed system fish farming designs that you can do and so we're thinking about trying to bring one of those out here and doing actually some shrimp or prawn wow so because we're landlocked obviously and yeah. most of our fish again shipped in from the coasts and whatnot and sure it's it's farmed so but at the same time locally produced and then obviously like those closed systems the waste from the fish produce and fertilize crop and so you basically hydroponic designs and it's a closed economical system yeah once money. you get it dialed in they basically take care of themselves all you got to do is essentially keep feeding the fish we built one back in southern california that we build like a black soldier fly harvesting kind of like basically you compost your food in this uh, little tub and then the sh the fly larva will crawl out and like up and drop down and you could feed your chickens with it or whatnot we built it so it would like they would crawl up and just drop right into our fish tank and so that became a primary fish food other than like some other nutritional stuff we ha we'd have to give to them so basically by putting our w food waste into this composting bin we had the whole system run and it wow. was producing veggies fish we were growing tilapia at the time and and so we had a ton of output just from basically turning waste into food and uh, feeding a closed system so I love it, man. It's very cool. inspiring. It's fun. Are you good on time? Do you, do you have a few yeah, minutes? Yeah, I could use the restroom. Yeah, but... let's take a, a bathroom break. We'll All come right, right back. All Sounds right? good. All right. And we're back. I want to switch gears a little. I, I love what you're saying about food sovereignty and just that word in general because for me, one of my biggest joys in life is backpacking. Mm. And I think that word sums it up so well because when I put everything in my backpack and just march into the wilderness. That's basically the definition of sovereignty. Mm -hmm. You are relying on yourself for yep. everything for however long you're going. Everything you have to survive is in your backpack or what you can find when you're out there, fishing, sure. hunting, whatever. That's just such a deep feeling for me and something that gives me so much satisfaction. And I think we've all experienced when we go backpacking or camping and then transition back into the real world quote unquote <laughs> what a shock it can be especially if you're away for a week or more for sure so I really I love that I want to switch to one of your other passions you mentioned your day job is in blockchain yeah which basically no one knows what that means um, <laughs> I have so many friends that have invested in crypto right whenever I ask them to explain it to me they can't I'm like well dude you invested in this and they're like, oh, well, it's, it's a meme. It's, yeah, it seems like it such a trend that so many people are involved in, but yeah. really nobody knows what it is. I've never invested in it because I have no idea what it is. Bitcoin, 
was one of the first major ones to come out. Very first, yeah. They always talked about mining bitcoins. Right. And I just thought to myself, how do you, who's controlling the mining? It, <laughs> eh, it seems kind of sketch. And then we just had that, the big scandal with, I'm blanking on. FTX, probably. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, where he embezzled all that money. And so this is such just a new and raw space. But right. I know that one of your other passions is thinking about the world of economics right. and becoming sovereign in that way. And you see crypto and blockchain as a path to that. So can you break it down for a layman guy <laughs> like me? Like, I have no idea what you're That's talking about. That's a loaded about. question. I have uh, no idea what yeah, you're talking yeah. about. So where do, where are you coming at this from? And, and how did you get started in this? And where do you see it going? Yeah, so I was, it was actually, I think, the cannabis industry. One of the dispensaries I was working with, he... He's like, hey, we just started to accept this thing called Bitcoin. And I've had people, I've had to hire like two interns to just run around and sell it for cash, you know, and like, because all these people are coming in and paying with it. See, and isn't that bizarre in itself? We just started accepting this thing, quote unquote, yeah. called Bitcoin. It's like, well, what is it? <laughs> well, like, if you look at the history of, of currency, I mean, we've gone from rocks to seashells to obviously coin, silver and gold coin, to there have been many different proxies for, for value capture. Cacao beans were huge yeah. in Central and South America. And usually they were local to the area, and like those beans had significance and value beyond just being a currency, but it could be represented by anything. But again, our cultural purview and how we've been brought up and trained and to think is it's all this dollar this this fiat federally issued currency thing but the reality is that's not even backed by anything what is a dollar it's a piece of paper right i mean so it's it's sapiens talked about this a lot the book as well now i feel like i'm a promoter for the book but <laughs> it, it just it was basically humans were different from any other species in our ability to create common myths that we all buy into and right. operate under and money above religion is probably the best example of how we all agree that that piece of paper has a value. Right. It actually doesn't, but we agree it does and we operate on that belief and therefore the system goes and we don't have to carry 40 pounds of seashells on our back to go trade for five pounds of apples. Or a bushel of peaches for right. a bushel of tomatoes or whatever else, or a ladder or whatever you might need. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a proxy for value, right? And I would say like if for from the perspective of cryptocurrency this it's the same exact thing these tokens or currencies depending on like how you want to think of it think about it or how they're designed they themselves are also just proxies for for value capture and shared commerce and so in it's just that it's a little bit more uh ethereal in the sense that it's essentially a purely a digital thing and, and it's code based. We can't hold it in our hands. Right. So which makes it different. But originally I had thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, that our currency was based on some actual value of used to be. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> now I think I just read that banks can loan I think up to ten percent of what they actually or ten percent more or times oh, than what they actually way, have. Way more than that. Which is leading to a lot of these banks collapsing yeah. that we've seen because they're over they're legally allowed to overextend. And then when something gets pulled out from under, they collapse and then we have to pay for them to 
to come back up. I think a better number, and I'm totally just kind of pulling this out of out of the back end, but uh, I would say 10% of the actual money that exists, the the like dollars that exist in the world, are accessible in a physical form. Huh. So very like very very little is actually like physically produced so if we all pulled our money out today it would be impossible we wouldn't all get it oh yeah it would just there's it wouldn't even be possible Hmm. we're already primarily in a digital dollar state at the moment the difference is the federal reserve can issue as many of these things as they want at a whim to satisfy whatever economic challenge or need that they see or foresee these things being dollar bills yeah and we have no ifs, ands, or say about it. And when they do these things, it actually devalues the rest of the dollars that are Inflation. in existence. Yeah. Okay. And so we're, we've felt the effects of this for years, very most commonly in the last hundred, where what a nickel used to be able to buy you 100 years ago versus what a nickel can buy you today. This is essentially the de- devaluation of purchasing power that's a result of increase in the money supply, inflation, all these types of things. Yet we still in the back of our minds think, oh, well, a dollar's a dollar. But the dollar today buys much less than the dollar yesterday or 10 years or a decade ago bought. And so with what's happening in the cryptocurrency space and the decentralization of money, granted it's yeah very technological and there's, that's, there's that whole aspect to it, there is finite supply in a lot of cases where use Bitcoin as the primary example. There's 21 million coins only. And at, as far as we know and is you know, thought about, the supply will never be increased. It really can't, essentially. And it becomes harder and harder to mine, as you said, to essentially earn those coins by securing the network through what's called mining. I have no idea what that means. If you're mi- if you're creating the program, don't you control what it mines and what it doesn't mine? So you're you're not creating the program in mining. You're essentially running a computer against a let's call it a mathematical problem and you're looking for a, 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 a the right combination. And when you find one, it spits out a, a, a value uh, which in the beginning it was I think like 50 Bitcoin per per block or, or per like issuance and then it was cut in half and then it's cut in half again I think at this point we're down to like I don't even know I don't I don't spend much time in the Bitcoin ecosystem I'm mainly in like the Ethereum world which is like a whole nother that's different yeah it, yeah definitely a lot of similarity but um, it is quite different but the it's kind of like the best way to think of it is an energy return on investment. You're essentially running a machine which takes energy to mine, basically extrapolate and discover these the, the value. But every one of these miners that are pointed to this network that are working on this like collective problem, they're all securing the network by acting also as like nodes and distributed uh, network across the globe. So if one goes down, it doesn't really matter because there are hundreds, thousands of others that are essentially like securing the same thing. 
Um, and then there's economic incentive for more and more to be pointing and to be mining this problem because of the value that it commands and assumes. And the energy involved in same thing, like let's call it a gold or silver bullion, you have to dig it out of the ground, you have to smelt it, you have to refine it, you have to mint it. It's the energy that it takes to produce all those things that give like that bullion its value. Okay, um, that makes so sense. So it's, it's a similar kind of mental model, I guess. It's kind of like farming in the sense that the energy you put into it and the work that the produces you know, a, a cashew yeah. is very expensive because it's a pain in the ass to, right. to get out, there right? There you go. Yeah, it's, it's exactly that. Okay. And therefore, too, like we could use all these things as proxies for value. They are proxies for value. We just have, as you pointed out, like agreed on a common intermediary and proxy for that which makes life very convenient. So we can all, if we can all agree that this thing is worth whatever, then we can, we can engage in commerce much more easily and uh, develop huge economies and economic systems as a result. Now, you are starting to see, I think, see some of the cracks in, in how that works and also the power brokers that really sit at the top and are able to control currency issuance and inflation, everything. And we're at the whim of all these things. And as a result, we're basically kind of playing their game now. Who's and, they? The government? Uh, the Federal Reserve. The Federal pri Reserve. Primarily. Okay. I mean, the government by proxy, but it, the Federal Reserve is, they're the, they're the guys that basically, yeah, command the entire thing. And um, what is their goal, do you think? Control. control. <laughs> I mean, inevitably. Um, it's it's like anything else um the and there's there's benefit to that to the extent of like we've created this huge globalized system and connected all the peoples of the world and societies but at what cost and what are, what's being sacrificed as a result our autonomy our sovereignty and i think uh we need to be a little bit more conscious of the the games being played and and kind of the how things are being orchestrated by them and take back that sovereignty. We are autonomous individuals that are able to live our lives as long as we're, I live by the golden rule, right? As long as you're not hurting someone and you're kind of like, you know, you're doing your thing, you, you get a- Code of the West, live it, and let live. Yeah, so right. crypto, they're, it's basically all sovereign, right? And we, we're able to create currencies out of essentially thin air that we believe or that we're agreeing as a common proxy of value for a particular project or goal or initiative. And as a result, we now can create these communities and these networks of people who, and tokens or uh, currencies that represent those specific networks in isolation. But doesn't the value of crypto change as well? Yeah, and it's against typically a fiat currency or a dollar, right? So like, what is your end proxy or uh, definition of value? If you think the dollar is what's the what is valuable, then you're measuring a token against it's. But this is like any so this is forex, right? It's like the euro against the dollar, the Canadian loonie against the dollar, the yuan against the dollar. It's not that the dollar in and of itself is worth. X, it's against anything else, product, other currencies, other 
value proxy. I see. So when people talk about the value of crypto going up or down, it's in it's in how much it's worth from your dollars. perspective. Okay. Yeah. Or if you're maybe in Europe, it's against the euro, right? Or, Got it. Yeah. So how does creating this crypto system alleviate the inflation issues and things that you're talking about that affect us? Well, you can design the issuance of these tokens, the the currency supply, to be finite. You can <clears throat> put it on an issuance schedule that's based on time or action. And as a result, you can really experiment with how economic value is captured and distributed amongst a group or a network of people that are have a common goal and a shared common goal. For what we're trying to build is essentially a currency or a value system that is outside of the hands of anyone. It's embedded and, and enshrined in code. So as long as that code is running, network will live on, the value exists, and it's benef equally beneficial to all the network participants versus some authority saying, we need more of it, let's issue more and devalue everybody else, for instance. And that's, you know, essentially the concept behind sovereign money generally and a lot of what's happening in the, in the crypto space is it's the, pe the people's choice of how, how much to produce, how, how quickly it should be issued, the rewards for uh, securing the network, whether it, there's a bunch of different ways and I don't want to go too nuanced here and lose everybody, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's essentially a shared collective push to rethink how yeah value is captured and distributed so I, I find it very interesting whenever i hear about digital currency now it's typically through the news and it's typically related to china who is trying to create this digital currency and this digital social network social credit score things like this and it's always talked about with a lot of hesitancy yep. because again the government's behind it so I see now that the U.S. government is getting involved in crypto with this latest scandal. They have even more interest in regulating it and stuff. We're kind of, you're explaining we're creating this as a people. If the government gets involved, is that all out the window now? Completely. Okay. Um, <laughs> so this is the next phase, the next era. First they laugh at you, you know, and then they fight you and then you win we're kind of i think we're in the then they fight you stage um, i remember speaking of laughing when there's one buddy in particular very active on facebook when he was an initial bitcoin buyer and he would post about it and get all these people making fun of him and then a few years ago he made some boastful post about where he had made you know, he'd bought it for whatever, five bucks and just sold it for $45,000, right. something like that. Yep. And who's laughing now? Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> that caught my attention because yeah. I said, well, maybe I should have spent the five bucks. Yeah. Early adopters are rewarded. And I think that that's true across the space. And I think that's like why there's some degree of speculation and chase. People are looking for like the next like big hit. But at the same time, that fuels greater innovation and Build, you know how to build better networks, better algorithms, better technology to secure these things. So this next phase we're entering, this and then they fight you stage, is what are called the CBDCs, uh, the central bank issued currencies, and they're essentially going to do, they're going to call it crypto, maybe blockchain or DLT, d distributed ledger technology. Blockchain is like a public open network, like shared network model. 
DLTs, typically like a private, controlled, closed, centralized version. And so they're essentially just going to make a bunch of digital dollars or digital euro or digital yuan, and all the same rules apply. They can not only issue as much as they want, since it's all now codified, they can put rules in these contracts and in, the, in this code that, oh, you're past your allowed spending limit now, and we're just going to turn you off for the month. Or you've spent too much on meat, and that's, that's more than your far, the, the personal carbon footprint allows. So it can get very dystopian that's very terrifying. fast. Yes. How likely is that? Very. Very. In my opinion. And that's why I've spent so much time focused on the decentralized like crypto space, because we need to essentially stay a step ahead and establish strong global networks that are decentralized so that we can have a alternative value system to what's about to come. In my opinion, none of these central central bank versions will likely succeed. I think there's going to be huge incentives, major UBI type kind of incentives that are dangled in front of people. But it's kind of one of those you're 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 getting used to further sucking on the teat of big government, and so. Um, <laughs> so what do you do with your money? How do you manage your personal finances? I'm, I mean, I'm all over the place. I um, obviously you're you have to play in the system to some extent. I truly believe in like the decentralized world and decentralized like currency systems. I'm very involved in investing over there, but also like I've. Help design and create new currencies all the time for projects. I work a lot in what's uh, called like the DAO space. Uh, DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization, essentially decentralized governance. So um, not DAO, Dow Jones. <laughs> different DAO. <laughs> different DAO. DOA. Uh, DAO. DAO. Yeah, yeah, I can spell. It's okay. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, um, basically thinking about companies and how we collectively organize, um, how we work together, creating and exploring new systems that aren't typically the typical form of top-down hierarchical, more flat structures where the people and the employees or the contributors, however you want to think about it or however it's structured, are all kind of on equal footing. Sometimes it's based on how many tokens you hold and your vote can sway. You can earn those by being more or less involved in said organization or project. And so I think we're, what has started as foundationally as like a money and economic approach with like crypto and blockchain is now quickly moving into like the social structure and collective organizations uh, uh, and like rethinking those models and how we can actually create more equitable systems and companies and ways of working together to benefit those that are deriving the value, or, or dri yeah, driving the value. So yeah, those who contribute the most value receive the most value, and then you have a greater weight in steering this organization, its treasury, and all the goals that it has set for itself. I understand how you could create this system and closed system, but for it to work on a day-to-day, -day, don't you have to have that crossover to other currencies to where now it's quote-unquote, worth something to buy the bananas or the peaches? Yeah, and because now Bitcoin, Ethereum, some of the larger networks have become so big and value capture within crypto industry, I think we're floating around a trillion in value locked up. 
all these other tokens, these dedicated decentralized governance tokens or um, various project tokens, are the proxy is typically against Ethereum or against Bitcoin versus against the dollar. But yeah, obviously onboarding and offboarding to banks, being able to get dollars in and dollars out is a big piece of the puzzle, at least for now. But as more and more value flows into the blockchain space generally and the Web3 space, it, it, it tends to stay, a lot of it tends to stay there. And they've, one of the, the biggest tools is uh, what are called stable coins. And these are essentially token proxies to a dollar. And so you can keep your assets within the network and tokenized, but they're pegged to the value of a dollar. And so instead of having to cash out to the bank and then go back in and basically uh, uh, keeping it within network. I find you very interesting because <laughs> you are on one hand working on cutting edge technology. And on the other part of your life, you are trying to go back a thousand years. <laughs> so it's to me, it's the yin and the yang, which makes total sense. But I just, I find you very interesting for that reason, because you have these kind of dueling mentalities. How do you see them fitting? I think like in a lot of ways, there's nothing new, right? We've, a lot of these things we've done before, we, we've seen work, we've taken steps in a different direction to learn. And I think there's so many lessons in history of old that we can pull forward. There's so much in the analog that can in, like, teach us about the digital and how best to structure these what are seen as digital currencies or digital governance systems, I would actually argue that employee uh, uh, farm collectives were the first DAOs. It's just they didn't need all the technology because they literally knew where everyone lived. You know, I know where my <laughs> I know my neighbor. I don't need this trustless system codified in order to enable the work that we're doing or whatnot. Interesting. Yeah. What can people expect from your farm this summer? What should people visiting Palisade or people who live here be yeah, keeping their eye on? We are, uh, we're going to have uh, some new crops this year. We're going to do the farmer's market. Yeah, I would say if you're interested in some locally raised uh, heritage pork, uh, Tell me about the pork. Yeah, now I remember you mentioning yeah. this. Yeah, we are we are yeah starting to you know raise and process obviously this heritage pork. It's the genetics and like the background of like is that this guy? Or is that yeah, that's <laughs> just the dog snoring. You know, <laughs> oh, it's I mean <laughs> it's our soundproof studio here. Just <laughs> is very relaxing. I guess we're putting everyone to sleep. Yeah, <laughs> hopefully people listening are still awake. Um. But yeah, these heritage breeds, the marbling quality of versus your typical 4-H pig, it's like very obvious once you've had a chance to taste it and, and look at it and enjoy it. And this uh, is served charcuterie style or in We We are starting shops? to, yeah, uh, fresh raw cuts, obviously frozen. And then we are, uh, we are starting to cure directly and produce charcuterie, salumi, all that good stuff. So... It's all a big experiment, right? I'm just like trying to figure it out as I go and introduce some new things to the area. Plus like to know, you know, where it comes from, what goes into it. So we use like no nitrates and celery salt and all that good stuff. So trying to keep it as, as natural and, you know, healthy as, as possible. But 
yeah, the the Berkshire specifically has been called like the Wagyu of pork in terms oh. of like its tenderness and like flavor profile. And so we w- the first round, we did a bunch of hog shares with some local people and the feedback's been tremendous. So that's a big part of the program. But when yeah. will that come out? Uh, we already have it. Yeah, you have it in stock now? Yeah, So how do. can people buy it? Uh, you can reach out to us directly on the website or through social media, Instagram or whatnot. And do you ship or is it local only? We can ship. Um, we Sounds need like a, you prefer to keep it local. Maybe. It would be great. But okay. yeah, we can definitely explore some shipping options. We might need to think about, you know, if we need a package with dry ice or all that kind of stuff. Just Got to come to Palisade to get yeah, the <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pick yeah. up only. It's in, your, it's in your interest because then you get to experience the beauty of this town as well. I'm now just starting to explore also with a, a, a friend, colleague, coworker in the, in the uh, Web3 blockchain space who has moved out to Palisade as well, uh, how to bring these two passions and worlds of mine together. So we're going to be experimenting with some stuff there, which I'm pretty excited about and trying to bring some of this tech and the benefit of it to the local community and shine a light on people and help them to think about food sovereignty the way they're focused on like financial and fiscal sovereignty in in like the blockchain space but yeah generally we're we'll have garlic tomatoes potatoes peppers all that that good stuff hopefully have some honey here soon so yeah we we're kind of all across the board and what we're what we're producing and obviously always open to people coming by to visit the farm and and check out kind of what we're doing our program and share with others hopefully inspire as well i can't wait to see what you create man you're yeah. a really interesting guy and happy to know you and have you a part of the community here thanks for coming and spending some time we just did an hour and 40 minutes awesome crazy breeze. Man. yeah super good to talk to you yeah, thanks for coming great. by man cheers take care all right bye everyone the terrain flying high up once again got my crew sitting healthy and my boo living wealthy level 99 never settle in my mind so i pedal and i climb up the pedestal and find almighty weapon so i calm lightly step into the castle satchel tackled wrestled down the corridor where i'm grounded through the floor roundhouse into my core down out and through the door sword down in my side i gotta round up and ride face boss break jaws till i take off face off stop and swing my serious strike this is it take the title disappear in the night to the whole wide world got the keys to the kingdom overseas with the wisdom guarantee that my rhythm hit the whole wide world slay the boss in the castle when we cross final battle then i walk out travel to the whole wide world got the keys to the kingdom overseas with the wisdom guarantee that my rhythm hit the whole wide world slay the boss